Hi, my name is Lone Wolf. I was named by the Cherokee peoples uh, many years ago, and I had the honor of sitting with the Cherokee and all 123 tribes, which I've interacted with, the Navajo, the Hopi, which I've been here in Sedona, uh, sitting with Grandfather Martin and, and other of the 496 native tribes. But one of the greatest souls that I've had the opportunity to spend time with was when I was a child. I lived in the town of Suquamish, Washington, which is across from Seattle. And I never knew why when I was six, seven years old playing Little League Baseball, uh, there was a plateau we'd play the game on, and then there was a cliff up above it. And my dog and I, we would just, for whatever reason, we would go up on this cliff. And I sat on this gravesite and turned out to be Chief Seattle's gravesite. So I'm going to read a little about this great soul who I believe and has been told to me was my father in a previous lifetime. So this is the introduction. Chief Seattle lived with his tribe, the Suquamish, on Kitsap Peninsula on the shores of Puget Sound across from Seattle, Washington, in an area known as the Pacific Northwest region of the the Squamish had lived there for thousands of years. Chief Seattle is renowned for a powerful and eloquent speech he gave in 1854 during the treaty negotiations with agents of the United States of America, or the United States government, rather. In his speech, Chief Seattle expressed a commitment to living in peace with the settlers and their new culture. He asked in turn that the settlers respect his people and the natural world that they shared. Today his words live on and have inspired many in human rights and environmental movements all over the world. Prior to contact with the white settlers, Suquamish were a powerful tribe and controller of northern area of northern Puget Sound. Their chiefs were influential and had extensive alliances with other tribes throughout the region. As a young man, Chief Seattle distinguished himself as an effective military leader and strategist by stopping raids by the aggressive tribes from the north. Because of his military successes and his great oratory ability, he became chief of both the Suquamish and the Duwamish tribes. Chief Seattle was a young boy when European explorers first sailed into Puget Sound in 1792, nearly 300 years after Columbus discovered America. During the next 73 years, in the course of one man's lifetime, the tribes of Puget Sound went from enjoying a culturally rich, autonomous lifestyle to almost total decimation by the non-native society. Throughout his adult life, Chief Seattle did everything he could to maintain friendly relations with the white settlers while working to ensure that his people did not lose their land and culture. Some have said his efforts were ineffective considering the extensive and disruptive changes in lifestyle that were first forced upon the Suquamish and other tribes in the region. Many died from Euro-American diseases. Tribal culture and religion were suppressed. Much of their tribal lands were appropriated, and the people were confined to a restrictive and inadequate reservations. By 1900, a rich and diverse native culture thousands of years old, was on the brink of destruction. Looking at it another way, however, Chief Seattle's leadership was successful. His people never went to war with their white neighbors, and the Suquamish as a tribe have survived to this day. Much of their culture is intact. They maintain sovereignty 
over thousands of acres along Puget Sound. And their leaders are an effective political force for native rights in the region. Today, Chief Seattle's spirit lives on in the hearts and minds of his people, the people of Seattle, and thousands of people around the world. His spirit returns whenever someone reads his speech, a document of grand eloquence and enduring inspiration, a testimony of a people of intelligence and sensitivity who could only hope for the best as the world came crashing down around them. Chief Seattle is buried on Suquamish tribal land that he loved and helped secure for his people. Across the sound from his gravesite is the city of Seattle, named in honor of this great chief. Dr. Henry Smith's version of the speech is called Yonder Sky That Is What Tears of Passion. This was spoken by Chief Seattle and recorded by Dr. Henry Smith in 1854. It was published in the Seattle Star, October 29, 1887. And I will read this. Yonder sky that has wept tears of compassion on our fathers for centuries untold, in which to us looks eternal, may change. Today is a fair, it is fair. Tomorrow it may be overcast with clouds. My words are like stars that never set. What Seattle says the great chief, Washington, can rely upon with as much certainty as our pale-faced brothers can rely upon the return of the seasons. The Indians thought that Washington was still alive. They knew the name to be that of a president. And when they heard of the president of Washington, they mistook the name of the city for the name of the reigning chief. The son of the white chief says his father sends us greetings of friendship and goodwill. This is kind for we know he has little need of our friendship in return, because his people are many. They are like the grass that covers the vast prairies, while my people are few, and resemble the scattering trees of a storm-swept plain. The great I presume also good, white chief, sends us word. He wants to buy our land, but is willing to allow us to reserve enough to live on comfortably. This indeed appears generous. For the red man no longer has rights that he need respect. And the offer may be wise also, for we are no longer in need of a great country. There was a time when our people covered the whole land, as the waves of a wind-ruffled sea cover the shell-paved floor. But that time has long since passed away, with the greatness of tribes now almost forgotten. I will not mourn over untimely decay, nor reproach, my pale-faced brothers, for hastening it. For we, too, may have been somewhat to blame. When our young men grew weary of some real or imaginary wrong and disfigured their faces with black paint, their hearts also are disfigured and turn black. And then their cruelty is relentless and knows no bounds, and our old men are not able to restrain them. But let us hope that the hostilities between the red man and his pale-faced brothers may never return we would have everything to lose and nothing to gain. True it is that revenge with our young braves is considered gain, even at the cost of their own lives. But old men who stay at home in times of war and old women who have sons to lose, we know better. Our great father Washington, for I presume he is now our father, as well as yours, since George has moved his boundaries to the north. Our great father... Our great good father, I say, sends us word by his son, who no doubt is a great chief among his people, 
that if we do as he desires, he will protect us. His brave armies will be to us a bristling wall of strength, and his great ships of war will fill our harbors, so that our ancient enemies far to the northward, the Simsions and the Hydas, will no longer frighten our women and old men. Then he will be our father, and we will be his children. But can this ever be? Your God loves your people and hates mine. He folds his arms strong and lovingly around the white man and leads him as a father leads his infant son. But he has forsaken his red children. It makes your people wax strong every day, and soon they will fill the land. While my people are ebbing away like a fast receding tide that will never flow again. The white man's God cannot love his red children or he would protect them. They seem to be orphans and can look nowhere for help. How can we become brothers? How can your father become our father and bring us prosperity and awaken in us dreams of returning greatness? Your God seems to us to be partial. He came to the white man. We never saw him. We never even heard his voice. He gave the white man laws, but he had no word for his red children, whose teeming millions filled the vast continent as the stars filled the firmament. No, we are two distinct races, and must ever remain so. There is little in common between us. The ashes of our ancestors are sacred, and their final resting place is hallowed ground. While you wander away from the tombs of your fathers seemingly without regret, your religion was written on tables of stone by the iron finger of an angry god, lest you might forget it. The red man can never remember nor comprehend it. Our religion is the traditions of our ancestors, the dreams of our old men, given them by the great spirit, and the visions of our shakams, and is written in the hearts of our people. Your dead cease to love you, and the homes of their nativity as soon as they pass the portals of the tomb. They wander far off beyond the stars and are soon forgotten, and never return. Our dead never forget the beautiful world that gave them being. They still love its winding rivers, its great mountains, its sequestered vales, and they ever yearn in tender affection over the lonely-hearted living and often return to visit and comfort us. Day and night cannot dwell together. The red man has ever fled the approach of the white man as the changing mists of the mountainside flee before the blazing morning sun. However, your proposition seems a just one, and I think my folks will accept it and will retire to the reservation you offer them, and we will dwell apart and in peace. For the words of the great white chief seem to be the voice of nature speaking to my people out of the thick darkness that is fast gathering around them, like a dense fog floating inward from a midnight sea. It matters but little where we pass the remainder of our days. They are not many. The Indian's night promises to be dark. No bright star hovers about the horizon. Sad voices, winds moan in the distance. Some grim nemesis, nemesis of our race is on the red man's trail. And wherever he goes, he will still hear the sure approaching footsteps of the fell destroyer and prepare to meet his doom. As does the wounded doe that hears the approaching footsteps of the hunter. A few more moons, a few more winters, and not one of all the mighty hosts that once filled this broad land 
or that now roam in the fragmentary bands throughout the vast solitudes will remain to weep over the tombs of a people once as powerful and as hopeful as your own. But why should we repine? Why should I murmur at the fate of my people? Tribes are made up of individuals and are no better than they. Men come and go like the waves of the sea. A tear, a tamangalus, a dirge, and they are gone from our longing eyes forever. Even the white man whose God walked and talked of him as friend to friend is not exempt from the common destiny. We may be brothers after all. We shall see. We will ponder your proposition, and when we have decided, we will tell you. But should we accept it, I here and now make this first condition, that we will not be denied the privilege without molestation of visiting at will the graves of our ancestors and our friends. Every part of this country is sacred to my people. Every hillside, every valley, every plain and grove has been hallowed by some fond memory or sad experience of my tribe. Even the rocks that seem to lie dumb as they swelter in the sun along the silent seashore in solemn grandeur thrill with memories of past events connected with the fate of my people. And the very dust under your feet responds more lovingly to our footsteps than to yours because of the ashes of our ancestors and our bare feet are conscious of a sympathetic touch, for the soil is rich with the life of our kindred. Sable braves and fond mothers, glad-hearted maidens, and the little children who lived and rejoiced here, and whose very names are now forgotten, still love these solitudes, and their deep fastnesses at eventide grow shadowy with the presence of dusky spirits. And when the last red man shall have perished from the earth, and his memory among the white men shall have become a myth. These shores shall swarm with the invisible dead of my tribe. And when your children's children shall thank themselves alone in the field, the store, the shop, upon the highway, or in the silence of the woods, they will not be alone. In all the earth there is no place dedicated to solitude. At night, when the streets of your cities and villages shall be silent, and you think them deserted, they will throng with the returning hosts that once filled and still love this beautiful land. The white man will never be alone. Let him be just and deal kindly with my people, for the dead are not altogether powerless. My brothers and sisters who may hear my voice, the background and the information for the speech I will read. Over the years, there has been much debate about Chief Seattle's speech. The main controversy centers around the authenticity of the version of the speech most popularly attributed to him. Although we may never know exactly what Chief Seattle said, we believe that he was probably as eloquent in subsequent versions of his speech portray him to be. Elon Gifford, a history teacher with an M.A. in U.S. history, has done an extend-depth study of the origin origin of this speech, along with a number of other researchers. Mr. Gibbard has traced the origin and evolution of the speech and writings it inspired. According to Chief Seattle, or Gifford, Chief Seattle gave his now famous speech to Isaac I. Stevens, the new governor and commissioner of Indian Affairs for the Washington Territories, January 10, 1884. While Stevens was on a 
preliminary field trip to visit and take a census of the Indian tribes and learn something of the character of the Sound and its harbor. One of the people in attendance at the meeting was Dr. Henry Smith, who kept a detailed journal of the proceedings. Unfortunately, his journals were later destroyed in a fire. Dr. Smith had lived in the area for two years and kept an interest in the local Indians. He hired Indian laborers to help on his farm and had a working knowledge of Chinook jargon, a shorthand language of about 300 words derived from French, English, and Indian languages. Seattle delivered his speech in his native tongue, Le Chutzid. From the Le Chutzid, it was translated to Chinook jargon. It was then translated into English. This process greatly simplified Seattle's message. The first printed version of the speech was written by Dr. Smith and appeared October 29, 1887, edition in the Seattle Star article entitled Early Reminiscences Number 10, Scraps from a Diary. The speech, and if you look at certain pages in here, represents Chief Seattle's message. But at this moment right now, there is so much that I can share of this great soul. I'm going to read his speech. I've read this thousands of times to many people in many places. So I will just read it the way that I have it. It's called Chief Seattle's Letter to the President in 1852. The President in Washington sends word that he wishes to buy our land. But how can you buy or sell the sky? The land? The idea is strange to us. If we do not own the freshness of the air and the sparkle of the water, how can you sell them? Every part of this earth is sacred to my people. Every shining pine needle, every humming insect, all are holy in the memory and experience of my people. We know the sap which courses through the trees, as we know the blood that courses through our veins. We are part of the earth, and it is part of us. The perfumed flowers are our sisters. The bear, the deer, the great eagle, these are our brothers. The rocky crest, the juice in the meadow, the body heat of a pony and a man, all belong to the same family. The shining water that moves in the streams and rivers is not just water, but the blood of our ancestors. If we sell you our land, you must remember it is sacred. Each ghostly reflection in the clear waters of the lakes tells of events and memories in the life of my people. The waters murmur in the voice of my father's father. The rivers are our brothers. They quench our thirst. They carry our canoes and feed our children. So you must give to the river the kindness you would give any brother. If we sell you our land, remember, the air is precious to us, and that the air shares its spirit with all the life it supports. The wind that gave our grandfather his first breath also receives his last sign. The wind also gives our children the spirit of life. So if we sell you our land, you must keep it apart and sacred as a place where man can go to taste the wind that is sweetened by the metal flowers. Will you teach your children what we have taught our children, that the earth is our mother? What befalls the earth befalls all the sons of the earth. This we know. The earth does not belong to man. Man belongs to the earth. All things are connected like the blood that unites us all. Man did not weave the web of life. He is merely a strand of it. Whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. One thing we know, our God is your God. The earth is precious to him, and to harm the earth is to heap contempt on its creator. 
Your destiny is a mystery to us. What will happen when the buffalo are all slaughtered, the wild horses tamed? What will happen when the secret corners of the forest are heavy with the scent of many men, and the view of the ripe hills is blotted by talking wires? Where will the thicket be? Gone. Where will the eagle be? Gone. And what is to say goodbye to the swift pony in the hunt, the end of living and the beginning of survival? When the last red man has vanished with his wilderness, and his memory is only the shadow of a cloud moving across the prairie, will these shores and forests still be here? Will there be any of the spirit of my people left? We love this earth as a newborn loves his mother's heartbeat. So, if we sell you our land, love it as we have loved it. Care for it as we have cared for it. Hold in your mind the memory of the land as it is when you receive it. Preserve the land for all children and love it as God loves us all. As we are part of the land, you too are part of the land. This earth is precious to us. It is also precious to you. One thing we know, there's only one God. No man, be he red man or white man, can be apart. We are all brothers. One of the people in attendance at the meeting was Dr. Henry Smith, who kept the detailed journal of the proceedings and a fortune before that it was destroyed in the fire. But when the chief delivered his speech in his native tongue, it was recorded that way, which I've already mentioned. Now, in the 1960s, William Arrowsmith, a professor of classical literature at the University of Texas, came across a paragraph of Smith's version of Seattle's speech. He was struck by the similarities between Seattle's words and the works by the great poet Pindar. Inspired by his findings, Aerosmith decided to take Dr. Smith's version of the speech and re-edit it. Using the language and phrasing more commonly spoken by regional tribes in Seattle's time, by talking to the traditional elders of these tribes, Aerosmith was able to develop a sense of the syntax they used. We have included the professor's version on pages 63 and 74 of this book. The most well-known version of Seattle's speech was written by Ted Perry, a theater arts professor and playwright at the University of Texas who was good friends of Aerosmith. The version of the speech can be found on pages in this book, which I'll read later. Perry was also under contract to the Southern Baptist Radio and Television Commission to write several films and topics of his choosing, including one of the contamination of our planet. In 1970, he attended an Earth Day rally at the University of Texas, where he heard Aerosmith read his version of the speech. Without Aerosmith's permission, Perry used the text as a basis for a new fictitious speech, which served as the narration for a film on pollution and ecology called Home. As a promotion for Home, the commission sent out 18,000 posters with the ver their version of Perry's speech claiming it was given by Chief Seattle. We are aware that there are many other adaptions of Chief Seattle's speech. We hope the versions included in this book are, at least in part, representative of the spirit of Chief Seattle and his desire for all people to live in harmony with the earth and each other. Our intentions in tracing the history of this speech is to be informant about, dimin about diminishing the inspiration it has brought to many people. Chief Seattle was born in 1786 in an aristocratic family. He gave him the Lashootse name Sitaw. 
Seattle is the name the settlers gave him because his original name was impossible for them to pronounce. His father was a Suquamish chief named Shuwiyabi. His mother, Shesholitsa, was the daughter of a Duwamish chief. He was married twice and had a daughter named Angeline by his first wife and a son named Jim by his second wife. He had other children, but their names are not known. I am one of them. He passed away at the age of 81 on June 7, 1866, in Old Man House on the Port Madison Indian Reservation, and is buried at the St. Peter's Church Cemetery in the town of Suquamish, a few miles from where he died. Henry A. Smith, in his series Early Reminiscences, describes Chief Seattle thus, Old Chief Seattle was the largest Indian I ever saw, and by far the noblest looking. He stood six feet tall in moccasins, with broad-shouldered, deep-chested, finely proportioned. His eyes were large, intelligent, expressive, and friendly, when in repose and faithfully mirrored, varying moods of the great soul could look through them. He was usually solemn, silent, and dignified, but on great occasions moved among the assembled multitudes like a titan among the Lilliputians, and his lightest word was awe. When rising to speak in counsel or to tender advice, all eyes were turned upon him, and the deep-toned, sonorous, eloquent sentences rolled from his lips like the ceaseless thunders of cataracts flowing from exhaustless fountains. His magnificent bearing was as noble as that of the most cultivated military chieftain in command of the forces of a continent. Neither his eloquence, his dignity, nor his grace were acquired. They were as native to his manhood as leaves and blossoms are to a flowing, flowering almond. His influence was marvelous. He might have been an emperor, but all his instincts were democratic, and he ruled his loyal subjects with kindness and paternal benignity. He was always flattered by marked attention from white men, and never so much as when seated at their tables. And on such occasions, he manifested more than anywhere else the genuine instincts of a gentle man. There are very few written records of Chief Seattle's early life. What we know of his rise to power is based on tribal oral history and a few accounts written by early settlers. What we do know is that as a young man, he distinguished himself as a great military leader and strategist by stopping raids from the aggressive tribes to the north. The following is a war story by the Suquamish about Chief Seattle. It became known that a group of over 100 warriors from inland tribes of the Green and White Rivers were assembling to stage raids on the Suquamish and other Puget Sound tribes. This was unwelcome news because they had raided the region before and many people were killed or carried off as slaves. A council was called of tribal leaders to plan a defense. Various ideas were discussed, but none could be agreed to. At some point in the council, Seattle spoke up. He was a young man and untested as a leader, but he proposed a plan so brilliant it was immediately accepted by the leaders. The raiding tribes were known to be coming down the Green River. At a certain point in the river, there was a section of rapids just downstream from a sharp bend. Here Seattle had his men fell a large tree. It was trimmed and put into position just below the surface of the river so as not to be visible from canoe. Seattle and his men then hid in the forest to await the arrival of the raiding party. 
Soon the raiders came streaming down the river. When their canoes hit the tree, they capsized, and the men were swept into the rapids. Many were dashed on the rocks and drowned. Those who made it to shore were dispatched with spear and arrow. The others that followed learned of the situation. They beached their canoes and ran away. The raiding party was completely routed. The people rejoiced, and Seattle was honored in a great celebration that lasted many days. Because of his military success, like those in the legend recounted above, and his great oratory ability, Seattle quickly rose to a place of eminence and high regard among his people. In 1808, at the age of 22, he became chief of both the Duwamish and Suquamish tribes. In 1838, Chief Seattle and other tribal leaders signed an agreement negotiated by officials of the Hudson Bay Company to end the widespread practice of revenge and murder. By the 1840s, he had changed from a war chief to a peace chief. He was known to the white settlers as Great Chief and one of the most influential men on Puget Sound. Not long after, he converted to Christianity through the Catholic Church and took the name Noah Sitao which is the name on his tombstone, along with Chief Seattle. Through the remainder of his life, he inaugurated regular prayer sessions among his people that were carried on well after his death. In 1853, the newly appointed governor of the Washington Territory and superintendent of Indian Affairs, Isaac Stevens, arrived in the Puget Sound area. In 1854, he was ordered to make treaties with all Indian tribes in the territory, thereby extinguishing Indian claims to the lands. Stevens was an ambitious man. He saw an opportunity to make his fortune in this new land by opening a railroad, rail route to the Pacific. A biographer writes, his temperament, training, and professional career best prepared him to operate as a monarch. He was a firm believer in manifest destiny and held a bizarre view that the native people of this region welcomed the disintegration of their culture. In a report to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, he wrote, the speedy extinction of the race seems rather to be hoped for than regretted, and they look forward to it themselves with a sort of indifference. Some observers at the time believed that his actions during the treaty process caused the one Indian war fought on Washington territory, the Yakamai War of 1855-56. As more and more settlements developed, the traditional hunting and fishing areas of Puget Sound tribes were appropriated by white settlers and no longer available. Chief Seattle realized the futility of resisting this influx of settlers and did everything he could to maintain friendly relations while trying to negotiate best terms for his people. Governor Stevens was the chief negotiator for the Point Elliot Treaty as well as the other four treaties in the Washington Territory. The negotiations were conducted in English, translated into Chinook jargon, and then the two dialects of Salish language. Language problems produced the difficulties in translation, creating misunderstanding. They still persist, persist to this day. On January 22, 1855, the Point Elliott Treaty was ratified by more than 20 tribes from the Puget Sound area. By agreeing to the treaty, the participating tribes relinquished control of vast areas of ancestral land. The Squamish tribes ceded 87,130 acres to the United States. They managed to keep 7,486 acres. 
The terms of the treaty stated that the tribes were to receive $150,000 as annuities and 15000 for moving and resettlement expenses. They were granted all rights to fish at their ancestral grounds and to hunt and gather plant foods on all unclaimed lands. They were to maintain friendly relations with the white settlers, not make war with other tribes except in self-defense, and not harbor lawbreakers. They were required to free all slaves and discontinue slavery. In exchange, the United States was, under each treaty, to maintain for 20 years a carpenter, a blacksmith, and the necessary shops, a farmer, a physician, with necessary medicines to support an agricultural and industrial school with proper instructions. To this day, it is unclear whether the Suquamish received any money for the land they gave up. Ted Perry's version of the speech. How can one sell the air? Every part of this earth is sacred to my people. Every shining pine needle, every tender shore, every vapor in the dark woods, every clearing, and every humming insect are holy in the memory and experience of my people. The sap which courses through the trees carries the memories of the red man. The white man's dead forget country of their birth, and they walk along among the stars. Our dead never forget this beautiful earth, for it is the mother of the red man. Our dead always love and remember the earth's swift rivers, the silent footsteps of spring, the sparkling ripples of the surface of the ponds, the gaudy colors of the birds. We are a part of the earth, and it is part of us. The perfumed flowers are our sisters, the deer, the horse, the great condor. These are our brothers. The rocky crest, the juice in the meadows, the body heat of a pony and man all belong to the same family. So when the great chief in Washington sends word that he wishes to buy our land, he asks much of us. What Chief Seattle says the great chief in Washington can count on, as surely as our white brothers can count on the return of the seasons. My words are like the stars. They do not set. Chief Washington also sends us word of friendship and goodwill. This is kind of him. So we will consider your offer to buy our land. It will not be easy. This land is sacred to us. We take our pleasure in the woods and the dancing streams. The water that moves in the brooks is not water, but the blood of our ancestors. If we sell your land, you must remember that it is sacred to us and forever teach your children that it is sacred. Each ghostly reflection in the clear water of the lakes tells of events and memories in the life of my people. The water's gurgle is the voice of my father's father. The rivers are our brothers that quench our thirst. The rivers between the tender arms of their banks carry our canoes where they will. So if we sell your land, you must remember and teach your children that the rivers are our brothers and yours and must henceforth give the rivers the kindness you would give to any brother. So Chief Seattle will consider the offers of Chief Washington. We will consider. The red man has always retreated from the advancing white man as the mist of the mountain slope runs before the morning sun. To us, the ashes of our fathers are sacred. Their graves are holy ground. And so these hills, these trees, this portion of earth is consecrated to us. The white man does not understand. One portion of land is the same to him as another, for he is a wanderer who comes in the night and borrows from the land whatever he needs. The earth is not his brother, but his enemy. 
And when he has won the struggle, he moves on. He leaves his father's graves behind. He does not care. He kidnaps the earth from his children. He does not care. The father's graves and the children's birthrights are forgotten by the white man. He treats his mother the earth and his brother the sky as things to be bought, plundered, and sold, like the sheep, bread, or bright peas. In this way, the dogs of appetite will devour the rich earth and leave only a desert. The white man is like a snake who eats his own tail in order to live, and the tail grows shorter and shorter. Our ways are different from yours. We do not live well in your cities. We seem like so many black warts on the face of the earth. The sight of the white man's cities pains the eyes of the red man, like the sunlight that stabs the eyes of one emerging from a dark cave. There's no place in the white man's cities quiet enough to hear the unfurling of the leaves in spring or the rustle of insects' wings. In the white man's cities, one is always trying to outrun an avalanche. The clatter only seems to pierce the car ears. But what is there to living if a man cannot hear the lonely cry of a thrush or the arguments of the frogs around the pond at night? But I am a red man and do not understand. I prefer the wind darting over the face of a pond and the smell of, of cleansed by a midday rain shower. There is registers to the red man, for all things share the same breath, the beasts, the trees, and man, they're all the same breath. The white man does not mind the foul air he breathes. Like a man in pain for many days, he is numb to the stench. But if, but if we sell your land, you must remember that the air is precious to us and our trees and the beasts. The wind gave, gives man his first breath and receives his last sigh. If we sell your land, you will keep it apart and sacred as a place where even the white man can go to taste a wind sweetened by meadow flowers. So we will consider your offer to buy our land. If we decide to accept, I will here and now make one condition. The white man must treat the beasts of this land as his brothers. I've heard stories of thousands, thousands of rotting buffaloes on the prairie left by the white man who shot them from a passing train. Do not, under, not understand. For us, the beasts are our brothers and we kill only to stay alive, to clothe ourselves and eat. If we sell him this land, the white man must do the same. For the animals are our brothers. What is man without the beast? Even the earthworm keeps the earth soft for man to walk upon. If all the beasts were gone, man would die from great loneliness. For whatever happens to the beast happens to man, for we are all of one breath. We will consider your offer to buy our land. Do not send white men asking us to decide more quickly. We will decide in our time. Should we accept, I here and now make this condition. We will never be denied the right to walk softly over the graves of our fathers, mothers, and friends. Nor many of the white men desecrate these graves. The graves must always be open to the sunlight and falling rain. Then the water will fall gently upon the green sprouts and seep slowly down the moistened to moisten the parched lips of our ancestors and quench their thirst. If we sell this land to you, I will make now this condition. You must teach your children that the ground beneath their feet responds more lovingly to our steps than to yours because it is rich 
with the lives of our kin. Teach your children what we have taught our children, that the earth is our mother. Whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons of the earth. If men spit upon the ground, they spit upon themselves. This we know. The earth does not belong to the white man. The white man belongs to the earth. This we know. All things are connected like the blood that unites our families. If we kill the snakes, the field mice will multiply and destroy our corn. All things are connected. Whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons and daughters of the earth. Man did not weave the web of life. He is merely a strand of it. Whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. No day and night cannot live together. We will consider your offer. What is it that the white man wishes to buy? My people ask me. The idea is strange to us. How can you buy and sell the sky? The warmth of the land, this of the antelope. How can we sell these things to you, and how can you buy them? Is the earth yours to do with as you wish merely because the red man signs a piece of paper and gives it to the white man? If we do not own the freshness of the air and the sparkle of the water, how can you buy them from us? How can you buy back the buffalo that once the last one has died? But we will consider your offer. In his passing moment of strength, the white man thinks that he is a god who can treat his mother, the earth, the rivers, which are his sisters, and his red brothers, as he wishes. But the man who would buy and sell his mother, his brothers, his sisters, would also burn his children to keep himself warm. So we will consider your offer to buy our land. Day and night cannot live together. Your offer seems fair. I think my people will accept it and go to the reservation you have prepared for them. We will live apart and in peace. Tribes are made of men, nothing more. Men come and go like the waves of the sea. The whites too shall pass, perhaps sooner than all other tribes, continuing to contaminate his own bed. The white man will one night suffocate in his own filth. But in his perishing, the white man will shine brightly, fired by the strength of the God who brought him to this land and for some special purpose gave him dominion over this land. That destiny is a mystery to us, for we do not understand what living becomes when the buffalo are all slaughtered, the wild horses are all tamed, and the secret corners of the forest heavy with the scent of many men, and the view of the ripe hills bottled by the talking wires. Where is the thicket? Gone. Where is the eagle? Gone. And what is to say goodbye to the swift pony and the hunt? The end of living in the beginning of survival. The white man's God gave him dominion over the beast, the woods, and the red man for some special purpose. But that destiny is a mystery to the red man. We might understand if we knew what it was that the white man dreams and what hopes he describes to children on long winter nights, what visions he burns under their eyes so that they will wish for tomorrow. The white man's dreams are hidden from us, and because they are hidden, we will go our own way. So we will consider your offer to buy our land. If we agree, it will be to secure the reservation you have promised. There, perhaps, we may live out our brief days as we wish. There's little in common between us. If we sell your land, it will be filled with the bold young men, the warm-breasted mothers, the sharp-minded women, 
and the little children who once lived and were happy there. Your dead go to walk among stars, but our dead return to the earth they love. The white man will never be alone unless in some distant day he destroys the mountains, the trees, the rivers, and the air. If the earth should come to that, and the spirits of our dead who love the earth no longer wish to return and visit their beloved, then in that noon glare that pierces the eyes, the white man will walk his desert in great loneliness. And now is William Aerosmith's version of the speech. My words are like the stars, brothers. The sky above us has pitied our fathers for many hundreds of years. To us it looks unchanging, but it may change. Today is fair. Tomorrow it may be covered with clouds. My words are like the stars. They do not set. What Seattle says the great Chief Washington can count on as surely as our white brothers can count on the return of the seasons. The white chief's son says his father sends us words of friendship and goodwill. This is kind of him, since we know he has little need of our friendship in return. His people are many, like the grass that covers the pines. My people are few, like the trees scattered by the storms of the grasslands. The great and good, I believe, white chief, sends us word he wants to buy our land, but he will reserve enough so that we can live comfortably. This seems generous, since the red man has no longer has rights that they need to respect. It may also be wise, since we no longer need a large country. Once my people covered this land like a flood tide moving with the wind across the shelf, littered flats. But that time is gone. And when, and with it, the greatness of tribes now almost forgotten, but I will not mourn the passing of my people, nor do I blame our white brothers for causing it. We, too, were perhaps partly to blame. When our young men grow angry at some wrong, we would imagine they make their faces ugly with black paint. Then their hearts, too, are ugly and black. They're hard, and their cruelty knows no limits, and our old men cannot restrain them. Let us hope that the wars between the red man and his white brothers will never come again. We would have everything to lose and nothing to gain. Young men view revenge as gain, even when they lose their own lives. But the old men who stay behind in time of war and mothers with sons to lose, we know better. Our great father Washington, for he must be our father now as well as yours, since George has moved his boundary northward, our great and good father sends word by his son, who is surely a great chief among his people, that he will protect us if we do what he wants. His brave shoulders, soldiers will be a strong law for my people, and his great warships will fill our harbors. Then our ancient enemies to the north, the Hadiyas and Shemishians, will no longer frighten our women and children. Then he will be our father, and we will be his children. But how can that be? Your God loves your people and hates mine. He puts his strong arm around the white man and leads him by the hand as the, the father leads his little boy. He has abandoned his grandchildren. He makes your people stronger. Soon they will flood all the land. But my people are an ebb tide. We never return. Now the white man's God cannot love his red children. He would protect them. Now we are orphans. There is no one to help us. So how can we be brothers?
How can your Father be our Father? You make us prosper and send us dreams of future greatness. Your God is prejudiced. He came to the white man. We never saw him, never even heard his voice. We gave the white man laws, but he had no word for his red children, whose numbers once filled this land as the stars filled the sky. No, we are two separate races, and we must stay separate. There is little in common between us. To us, the ashes of our fathers are sacred. The graves are holy ground. But you are wanderers. You leave your father's graves behind you, and you do not care. Your religion was written on tables by stone, by the iron finger of an angry God, so you would not forget it. That man could never understand it or remember it. Our religion is the way of our forefathers, the dreams of our old men, sent to them by the Great Spirit, in visions of our sockens, and it is written in the hearts of our people. Your dead forget you and the country of their birth as soon as they go beyond the grave and walk among the stars. They're quickly forgotten and never return. Our dead never forget this beautiful earth. It is their mother. They always love and remember her rivers, as great mountains, her valleys. They long for the living who are lonely too and who long for the dead and their spirits often return to visit and console us. Day and night cannot dwell together. The red man has ever fled the approach of the white man by the changing mist of the mountainside. Flee before the blazing morning sun. No day and night can live together. The red man has always retreated before the advancing white man as the mist on the slopes, mountain slopes, runs before the morning sun. See, your offer seems fair, and I think my people will accept and go to the reservation you offer them. We will live apart and in peace, for the words of the great white chief were like the words of nature speaking to my people out of the great darkness, a darkness that gathers around us like the night fog moving inland from the midnight sea. It matters little where we pass the rest of our days. There are not many. The Indian's night will be dark. No bright star shines on its horizons. The wind is sad. Fate hunts the red man down. Wherever he goes, he will hear the approaching steps of his destroyer and prepare to die like the wounded doe who hears the step of the hunter. A few more moons, a few more winters, none of the children of the great tribes that once lived in this white earth, wide earth, but that roam now in small bands in the woods will be left to mourn the graves of a people once as powerful and as hopeful as yours. But why should I mourn the passing of my people? Tribes are made of men, nothing more. Men come and go, like the waves of the sea, a tear, a prayer, to the great spirit, a dirge, and they're gone from our longing eyes forever. Even the white man whose God walked and talked to him as friend to friend cannot be exempt from the common destiny. We may be brothers after all. We shall see. We will consider your offer. When we have decided, we will let you know. Should we accept our here and now, make this condition, we will never be denied the right to visit at any time the graves of our fathers and friends. Every part of this earth is sacred to my people. Every hillside, every valley, clearing and wood, it's holy in the memory and experience of my people. Even those unspeaking stones along the shores are loud with the events and memories in the life of my people. 
The ground beneath your feet responds with lovingly, more lovingly to our steps than yours, because the ashes of our grandfathers, our bare feet now, the kindred touch. The earth is rich with the lives of our kin. Young men, mothers and girls, the little children who once lived and were happy here, still love these lonely places. And at evening, the forests are dark with the presence of the dead. The last red man has vanished from this earth, and his memory is just a story among the whites. These shores will still swarm with the invisible dead of my people. And when their children's children think they are alone in the fields, the forests, the shops, the highways, the quiet of the woods, they will not be alone. There is no place in this country where a man can be alone at night when the streets of your town cities are quiet and you think they are empty. They will throng with the returning spirits that once thronged them and still love these places. The white man will never be alone. So let him be just and deal kindly with my people. The dead have power too. Squamish tribe today in Port Madison Indian Reservation, home to the Squamish, was established by Point Elliot Treaty in 1854. According to the terms of the treaty, the Squamish and several other tribes were given exclusive use of 7,486 acres of the land of Kitsap County, located on the Kitsap Peninsula. It is a beautiful section of the county and lies west across Puget Sound from Seattle. Also under the terms of the treaty, the Squamish and other tribes were allowed to use areas of the reservation. As a result, a large portion of the northeastern tip of the Olympic Peninsula, including the Kitsap and Puget Sound, and the waters to Canada, were established as usual and accustomed areas of the tribe for fishing and hunting and gathering, including digging clams. In 1855, as part of the treaty process, the Squamish tribe was officially recognized as a sovereign nation by the government. Today, the seat of the government is located at the Squamish Tribal Center near the village of Squamish. As of 2005, there are more than 1,000 registered members of the Squamish tribe left and make up what is called the Squamish General Council. A seven-member tribe council is elected by voting age members of the general council and operates under constitution and bylaws. They take care of the business of the tribe and direct the work of the administrative staff. The tribal center built in 1979 is where all government and other officials reside. And there's more details of these things. But now, some of the things in the conclusion I will read because it's very important that we understand these trees have not been honored. Puget Sound was a main source of food before the Euro-American contact and is still an important source of livelihood for many Native people in the region. Tribal leaders continue to argue, argue in the courts for fishing and hunting rights granted in 1974. A federal court awarded tribal members the right to 50% of the local salmon catch in their usual custom areas. Another court in 1995 gave the 16 tribes of Puget Sound the right to 50% of the local shellfish. Hunting rights were upheld in the state to 1997. Salmon runs today have been reduced by 90% due to overfishing by commercial interests and disruptive effects of dams and reservoirs. In an effort to ensure the salmon's survival, the Squamish tribe operates a fish hatchery and stocks agate pass and other areas. 
Each year, the tribe releases over 5 million fish into the Puget Sound water system. After release, the young fish swim out to sea and feed and mature. A small percentage survive, and 18 months later, return to be harvested by the grateful native fishermen. The timber and the marine resources of this region have been heavily harvested since ownership passed out of native hands. By 1920, they were much depleted. But conservation and efforts began in the 1970s, beginning to reverse this decline. The sea otter, hunted close to extinction, has been reintroduced and is now flourishing. Today, this area is home to the densest population of bald eagles in the lower 48 states. The ecosystem seems to be recovering, but there is much, much more that needs to be done. Today, because of the federal policies over the Point Elliott Treaty, a large percentage of the reservation land is owned by non-natives. A major goal for the tribe has been to purchase the land on the reservation for the benefit of the Suquamish community. The establishment of a tribal housing development department has enabled many Suquamish people to move back to their ancestral home. The future looks promising for the Suquamish people of Puget Sound as a result of Great Chief Seattle's efforts. The tribe's control and secure land base after decades of decline. Our population is growing. Their dedicated leaders have a strong sense of tribal identity and wise to the ways of the modern world but, but for the good of their people. Add to this the potential for significant revenue stream from casino operations that seem to have a great formula for success. All the best to the Squamish people. My brothers in Hopi land and great grandfather Martin, who just crossed over at 97 years old, refuses and will not allow casinos on the reservation. Because of that, his reservation is being split up. The young ones are trying to bring the casinos to get money to be able to live. It's very tragic in some ways that we have to learn to gamble to feed our faces. Just don't seem right to me. And that's about all I have to say right now.